From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As an unprecedented level of uncertainty is fomented about the November 3rd presidential election, we speak to author Natan Elaine Kemp on the legacy of violent voter suppression and election fraud from the period of Reconstruction in the United States. Talk about Ida B. Wells. She mentions Edgefield by name. Blacks were killed just because they attempted to exercise their right to vote. And after nearly a century after hundreds of African Americans were murdered by a white mob, including police and National Guard in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a mass grave has been uncovered that is believed to contain some of those slain. What we were finding was an indication that we were inside a large area, a big excavation area, um, a large hole that had been excavated and into which several individuals have been placed inside of coffins and buried in that location. This constitutes a mass grave. All that and much more coming up. Now, despite a boycott by Democrats and against its own procedural rules, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted Thursday to approve the nomination of far-right Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, setting the stage for a full Senate to vote on her confirmation as early as Monday, October 26th. In their empty seats, Democrats left poster-sized portraits of Americans who are now covered under the Affordable Care Act, which Democrats say will be gutted by a 6-3 conservative court with Barrett voting with the majority. Outside the Senate building, activists and lawmakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, rallied against both Barrett's nomination and the process Republicans are using to ram through her confirmation. So we are assembled here today to tell Lindsey Graham, to tell the Republican majority, remember what you said when Obama was president that it is wrong for a nomination to be pushed through in the last months of a president's term. By the time that nomination is going to be voted on in the Senate, tens and tens of millions of people will have voted for a new president. And those people have a right to allow that new president to decide and to nominate who the next Supreme Court nominee will be. As the final debate of the presidential race was held Thursday night, some D.C. activists are preparing for what to do in the event that there is election chaos. Chantel James has more. With the November 3rd presidential election quickly approaching, activists are already mobilizing and strategizing with contingency plans for the event that Donald Trump does not concede defeat as he has raised alarms that he may not even accept election results. Shutdown D.C. held a training on Tuesday called Escalating Resistance in Times of Crisis. Facilitated by longtime direct action trainer and author Lisa Fithian, the interactive dialogue among more than 200 participants ranged from providing tactical tips for maintaining safety in the face of militarized police response to protests to disaster preparedness and to self-care. 
Pythian explained the potential of radical transformation in times of social chaos as participants prepared to hit the ground fighting for a better world. It's very easy for us to look at all the horror and to get stuck in fear and to not always see or understand how much things are change or how powerful we are or what's really underway. And I actually think that we are in one of the most, the deepest transformative periods I have seen in a long time. So we've been living in this tremendous state of chaos is the soup from which change emerges. Let's get cooking. <laughs> because we can stand here and get battered by the waves and the chaos, or we can start cooking and getting ready to put in what we need, right? To make sure that soup delivers the nourishment that we need. Fithian talked about creating a culture of care and being the shepherds of a movement from separation to connection, saying that the recognition of our interconnectivity should strengthen organizers. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. The other major scandal coming from Washington, D.C. this week is the revelation that parents of 546 migrant children separated by the Trump administration have not been located and that most of the parents have been deported without their children. In some cases, the whereabouts of children seized by the administration is also unknown. Attorneys with the American Civil Liberties Union, appointed by a federal judge to locate separated family members, told reporters this week that these families were broken up in a Trump 2017 pilot program, which separated more than 1,000 families. Only about half of them have been reunited. In other international news, protesters rallied outside the Nigerian embassy in northwest D.C. on Wednesday, one day after Nigeria's controversial Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, opened fire on peaceful demonstrators in Lagos State Tuesday night, killing at least 10 and wounding hundreds. Peaceful protests have been ongoing in Nigeria since officers in the same unit shot a man earlier this month outside of a hotel. Peaceful protesters have taken to social media and to the streets of Nigeria's cities under the banner in SARS. Calls to end the SARS police unit have been taken up around the globe, including by the U.S. Movement for Black Lives, which released a statement Thursday, which said in part, quote, The reason black people in Nigeria are demanding an end to SARS is the same reason black people in the United States are demanding the defunding of police. The epidemic of police violence against black people in a country led by black faces proves what we have said time and again. Violence imposed by law enforcement is about more than a few bad apples. The institution itself is irredeemable and exists to use violence to maintain a false sense of order in an unequal and unjust society. End quote. In COVID news here in D.C., as the announced date for school reopening nears, 
Members of the D.C. public school community continue to protest the abrupt firing of longtime high school principal Richard Trogich. Families at the combined school without walls and Francis Stevens education campus received a letter from the school system Wednesday, October 7th, saying that Trogish would no longer be serving as principal of either the high school or the combined elementary middle school educational campus, effective immediately. The letter stated no reason for Trogich's departure, but community speculation quickly centered on his being fired for questioning the school system's reopening plans for his school buildings. The school district later issued a statement saying that his departure was related to a school enrollment anomaly, but staff and parents said the firing occurred after a combative virtual meeting between the principal staff and DCPS leadership over school reopening, citing especially the safety of the Francis Stevens building because of vermin and dilapidated ventilation, heating, and air conditioning systems. Michael Burns, a parent of high school-age students, was among those at the action. Uh, I think the evidence of his performance over the last decade at School Without Walls speaks for itself. The school has improved every year. Its performance has improved. The grades have improved. Its national rankings, for what they're worth, uh, have improved every year. Currently, according to some publications, U.S. News and World Report, for whatever stock you put in that, uh, the number one school in the district. So, um, and highly competitive with the best schools in the entire DMV region. So. I'm failing to understand the rationale for removing a principal who has delivered a school in 10 years to that level. Also, in response to complaints filed by the Washington Teachers Union, the Public Employees Relations Board hearing examiner ruled on Tuesday, October 20th, that D.C. public schools violated the law by refusing to bargain with the union regarding reopening planning and granted the union's renewed request for a preliminary relief. The board found that there is reasonable cause to believe that DCPS has violated the law by not bargaining with the teachers union regarding reopening and ordered that DCPS bargain with the union over health and safety matters as they relate to reopening within five days of the ruling. In culture and media, on tonight, Friday, August 23rd at 7 p.m., there will be a tribute to our mothers, a tribute to mothers who have lost a child to police brutality and police shootings that will be at the United States Capitol, but it will also be simulcast on Facebook. And there's information at Eventbrite and on Facebook under Rise Up and Stand, a tribute to our mothers. Also on Sunday at 2 p.m., that's October 25th at 2 p.m., there will be a teaching on the dead-end politics of the two-party system at Malcolm X Park in Northwest D.C., and that will be hosted by the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and there's information and tickets also on Facebook. In this week in history, on October 20th, 2011, Libyan leader Colonel Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated by rebel forces, aided by an attack carried out by the Obama administration and European governments. For decades, Gaddafi has steered an independent path of nationalism, socialism, and anti-imperialism based on Libya's extensive oil holdings. The country had one of the highest standards of living on the African continent and is now a failed state with the introduction of slave auction blocks where sub-Saharan Africans are sold and caught up in illegal trafficking across the Mediterranean.
And on October 22, 2010, WikiLeaks published the Iraq War Logs, a compendium of nearly 400,000 classified U.S. Army field reports revealing what founder Julian Assange called intimate details of the war, including war crimes and other serious human rights abuses perpetrated by American and coalition troops, private contractors, and Iraqi government and paramilitary forces. Ten years later, Assange is imprisoned, and awaiting a decision from a U.K. judge about whether he will be extradited to the United States to face espionage charges. The U.S. Army soldier who leaked the documents, Chelsea Manning, is also in and out of prison, but those whose crimes against humanity are documented in the war logs remain free. And those are our headlines and happenings. Stay with us. On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And I'm so pleased to bring back to the show Natan Elaine Kemp, co-author of There is Something About Edgefield, which is for me a book about history, in this case, history about Edgefield, South Carolina, and that area, a stronghold of the U.S. slaveocracy. And, and for me, it's also a book about the often difficult task of researching African-American family roots. Natan is a native Washingtonian and inspired by her mother's trips to Abbeville County, South Carolina during the 1990s to learn more about her maternal line. Natan began researching her paternal line in 2001. Both of her paternal grandparents were born in Edgefield County, South Carolina. She's a family historian uh, researching ancestors from the District of Columbia, Abbeville, Edgefield and McCormick counties in South Carolina and Brunswick, Carolyn, Hanover, and Louisa counties in Virginia. She's a 2010 graduate of the National Institute on Genealogical Records, now known as the Genealogical Institute on Federal Records. And 
From 2011 to 2013, she served as editor of Home Place, the official newsletter of the Old Edgefield District African American Genealogical Society. Welcome back to the show, Natan. It's great to be back, Esther. So happy to have you back. Well, when we first spoke during the spring, it was in the days just after the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. And we related what was happening in terms of current events to some of the horrific violence that African-Americans endured in the decades after the Civil War, what we know as Reconstruction. And now in the fall, the presidential election is less than two weeks away. There is rampant voter suppression from the highest office in the land. Much of this suppression directed toward African-American voters in places like Georgia. President Donald Trump is openly calling for armed militias to be so-called poll watchers in Democratic, especially black and brown communities. And so with the election coming up, I want to revisit the theme of black voting power in Edgefield and talk again about how voting and the vote was the flashpoint for so much of the violence perpetrated against African-Americans as they wanted to exercise their full citizenship and how that citizenship was feared and it was suppressed. So why don't we start with that? Given what's happening right now, I just think it's important for people to realize what black folks endured after the Civil War as they attempted to vote. Yes. Well, let me begin by giving some background. 1868, the presidential election of 1868 was the first time that African-American men, because only men could vote at this time, could vote for president of the United States as after the Civil War has concluded with the victory by the Union. In South Carolina, African-American men were able to vote everywhere in the state but in Edgefield. So Edgefield stands out in South Carolina because it was the only place that the men, African-American, newly freed African-American men, could not vote Voter suppression occurred because the whites threatened the black officials so much they feared for their lives and didn't open the polls. Now, there's a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Kane who was a registrar of elections in Edgefield. He testified, uh, I believe it was in 1869, regarding another contest. I believe the for the seat of the congressional district. At one point, he is asked, how many registered voters in Edgefield County? He responded, at the registration in June, this would be of 1868, 4,555 colored voters, 2,569 white voters. Blacks, if they could exert themselves through the polls, could exert their will politically in Edgefield. And this is what the whites did not want to happen. And I shouldn't say all whites, but definitely a very influential group of individuals made it their mission to prevent blacks from gaining any political power in Edgefield. I'm glad that you mentioned Lawrence Kane because that is another book published by your press, Rocky Pond Press, The Virtue of Kane by Kevin Cherry Sr. I believe, and also an excellent book where he really takes a deep dive into the life of Lawrence Kane, 
And there are some really harrowing passages, you know, detailing these elections and the violence and the destruction of property perpetrated against the black population to keep them from voting. So, you know, maybe we can we can make sure we give that a, a another mention before our conversation is finished. And when you were doing your research, how did you first discover the connection between uh, how voting was used to suppress the population? Once I had exhausted what I could in terms of researching my direct line, I decided to look more broadly in Edgefield, where they live, to get a sense of what things were like for the Black population. I have no writings from my ancestors, no journals, diaries. So I had to turn to what was happening more broadly to get a sense. And as I studied Edgefield, going through the local newspapers, looking at congressional testimony regarding disputed elections during Reconstruction or violence during Reconstruction, I stumbled across the fact that no one was able to vote for the president in 1868 in Edgefield County. And number two, I came across the fact that the 1876 election, which I think from a national perspective, a lot of us know was very important in the history of the United States, Edgefield, or actually the state of South Carolina, was one of those battlegrounds in terms of maintaining the efforts during Reconstruction versus the reassertion of white dominance and white power, particularly in the South. And Edgefield happened to be ground zero because the plan that allowed whites to regain power politically in South Carolina was known as the Edgefield Plan. Mm. So Edgefield was the epicenter. And Lawrence Kane was at ground zero trying to resist all of that. What was the Edgefield plan? Was it just basically intimidation, violence, and murder? I mean, basically by any means necessary to suppress the black vote. Right. That including threatening black citizens, that included murdering black citizens, that including whites voting more than once, that including allowing whites from Augusta, Georgia, which is on the border with Edgefield County, Mm-hmm. to come over and vote in Edgefield. There are stuffing ballot boxes. You have a group known as the Red Shirts. It's not exactly the same as the Ku Klux Klan, Ku Klux Klan but they shared some traits with them. But this was a group, the Red Shirts, that proudly represented their interests, the interests of the Confederacy, even though they lost. And they did what they could to suppress the vote. For instance, I think I recount in the book where some black voters attempted to vote, but you had whites on horses with their pistols and their red shirts standing around the polling center, preventing blacks from actually reaching the polls to vote. Right. And I think that when we spoke back in June, I read the quote from, I think it was a member of Congress who just said very boldly and proudly, like, you know, we have done our best to basically keep black people from voting. And uh, he wasn't shy about it. Now, Natan, you were going to tell me about how this related to some passages in The Virtue of Cain also. 
Yes, but first I wanted to follow up with what you just asked about the quote. The individual you were referring to was Benjamin, nicknamed Pitchfork Tillman. Yeah. He was governor and later served as a U.S. senator representing South Carolina. My co-author quoted him where he states, quote, we have done our level best to prevent blacks from voting, and we have scratched our heads to find out how we could eliminate the last one of them. We stuffed ballot boxes. We shot them. We are not ashamed of it, unquote. Wow. Yes. And, and he made this speech on the floor of the Congress? I believe so. So absolutely no regrets. It was something that they had to do to maintain power. Just to give you an example, I gave you the count in terms of registered voters in Edgefield in 1868, uh, black versus whites. Just to give you another example, to give you an idea, blacks outnumbered whites in Edgefield. In 1860, with the 1860 census, Edgefield County was the sixth largest enslaved county in the United States. Wow, this what this is 1860? 1860. Mm-hmm. So that's the you know that's the last sort of population you have officially before the Civil War. Right. And then by 1870, they're freed. So you have to go with 1860 as the closest state you have to that the size of the enslaved population in Edgefield. Now switching to the book Virtue of Cain from Slave to Senator Biography of Lawrence Cain. The introduction is written by a professor, Orville Burton, and he has a couple of passages here, which I'm just going to read something briefly to give you an idea. He says, number one, quoting, Reconstruction is the most important and least understood period in U.S. history. And in Edgeville and in South Carolina, Reconstruction is the most progressive period in the history of the county and the state. If we can locate the identity of America, it is not in the Civil War, but in Reconstruction. Hmm, right. And I think around the time we did our interview, it could be that your book kind of sparked my whole interest in kind of re-exploring Reconstruction. After your book, Brian Stevenson's project down uh, came out with the with the report Reconstruction in America. Yeah, that came out. And, and then, of course, I read the book uh, on Lawrence Kane. So... I can so relate to that, that quote for sure. Yes. And also Professor Gates had a two part series, I believe on PBS regarding reconstruction America after the civil war. And so I think that also garnered a lot of attention regarding this overlook period in American history, because it's really not discussed. I think from perspective of a lot of African-Americans, sometimes it's just viewed as a failure. I mean, there were successes in the beginning, but ultimately a failure because whites ultimately in the South regained power. The North got tired of the battles and the issues with what was going on in the South and basically kind of withdrew back to their own concerns. So, So the black population was left in a very hostile environment. So, right. So the booklet I was trying to remember is Reconstruction in America, Racial Violence After the Civil War, 1865 to 1876. And that's put out by the Equal Justice Initiative, EJI.org. And it's available to see online, but they also have it in a book form that you can buy. I know I've really pumped it up 
a lot on this on this show so i see now that you can actually buy it so you know maybe they're making a little money off of it which is great um but it it really sparked my whole initiative to look back into that era and it it happened at the same time when of course we have this national uprising against racism and so issues uh like reconstruction uh have become more important in this show also we're going to talk about uh Tulsa and how this week they believe they found the first remains of people who were actually massacred in that 1921 race massacre which killed, you know, at least 300 African Americans were were massacred by this white mob uh in Oklahoma and that actually reminds me to ask you about the Hamburg incident in the Edgefield area and also Hamburg itself. Because when we spoke in June, we talked a little bit about the riot, which was related to this racial violence, but also Hamburg is kind of an early version of Tulsa where blacks just out of slavery, nonetheless, were thriving and trying to make a new life for themselves. Yes, that's true. I want to mention first and talking about Hamburg, just to give the audience a a better understanding. In 1868, Edgefield changed political names in terms of what the state did. They changed it from a district to a county. Hamburg was part of Edgefield County in 1868, but I believe it was in March of 1871, Aiken County was formed and Hamburg became part of Aiken County at that point and was no longer part of Edgefield. But when Hamburg started to thrive post-Civil War, and I'm looking at a book called The Bloody Shirt, Terror After the Civil War by Stephen Badansky, he mentioned specifically regarding Hamburg, within a few years, the town was home to hundreds of colored families who had broken free of the life of contracted farm workers, a life scarily distinguishable from slavery. Among their numbers were school teachers, railroad employees, blacksmiths, a successful cotton broker, a printer, a clerk of the court, shoemakers, painters, carpenters, a constable. They bought lots and furnished homes. There were several who made considerable investments in farms and other real estate in South Carolina and states beyond. So Hamburg quickly became a thriving middle class and, and for a few sort of upper class place to live. They were able to throw off their old life uh, as being farmers and to be able to prosper economically. Mm -hmm. And what you have similar to Tulsa is whites did not like that. They wanted blacks under their foot. They didn't want to see blacks achieve to assert their independence, to prove that they could do things on their own. They didn't depend on whites to be able to not only make a living, but to excel. Wow. And in this environment, there was the Hamburg uh, massacre. That's correct. And this occurred in 1876. So this was also ended up being a rallying cry for the election in 1876 in November. Some people think, you know, some of this may have been staged Hmm. to ignite the Edgefield plan to really get wider support for the efforts. My understanding is it started on, I believe it started on July 4th. And you had a black militia group doing their marching 
in town and it was there were two individuals white individuals i think farmers trying to travel along the road and they wanted this militia to move and dispute arguments started back and forth between the black militia and these two farmers and it got to the point where ultimately weapons were used and I'm not sure if it was the same day or the next day. I'm sorry, I cannot recall that information. But ultimately, you had, I know one white individual died. I believe a couple of black individuals were killed. Probably up to eight to ten were killed. But this incident garnered a lot of attention. Because I will remind you again that Edgeville is on the border with Augusta. In fact, Hamburg was right on the border with Augusta. Hamburg does not exist today. So it was right on the border with Augusta. Anytime there was tension, the whites in Edgefield could always turn to the whites in Augusta who would come across and be their backup and help them out. And I believe after that initial flare-up, you had whites from Augusta come and assist the whites in Edgefield to try to track down those black militia members. Well, we're rapidly running out of time. We never have enough time for these discussions, right? But um, I do want to spend a little time so that you can offer our listeners some advice on beginning or continuing research into their family history. When I was reading your bio, it said a few things that were familiar to me. Like, for example, one of the articles that you wrote was stumbling without the 1890 census. And I think that's because that's the year that the census burned, right? Yes. And yes, it was a fire at the Commerce Building in 1921. Right. And then overcoming the brick wall of slavery. So I I know that those of us who are African-American who have tried to research our histories, you do feel like you hit this wall because it's not like you can kind of find regular records, you know, and so... I know you can't get into either of those in depth, but just give us a maybe one tip that you think is helpful for anyone beginning to research their family history. A tip would be when you start off, make sure you collect as much information as you can on your parents, their siblings, your grandparents, your great grandparents. Get all of that information first. And then go to the census. Start off with the 1940 census and work your way back chronologically every 10 years. The issue is the 1890 census. So you will have a gap of 20 years between 1900 and 1880. But first work your way back to 1870. And then what you need to do if you can is you want to try to fill the gap in that 20 year time period. And this is where vital records are important. So you want to get birth, marriage, and death records if you can. Also check depending on the location There may be more resources either at the state or local level. You can have, there are local census records, there are tax records, land transactions, voter registration. Of course, that's only going to be males. You want to look also at church records. I'll just quickly state that for South Carolina, for Baptist records, Furman University is the repository for all South Carolina Baptist church records. And depending on the location and the church and what remains, you may have extensive records, even going back to slavery, where they name the slaves. Sometimes slaves are baptized. That's recorded. Slaves are excommunicated for certain things that that they've done. So you can have that type of detail. 
So don't overlook that. And also you want to look at uh, wills of slave owners. So there's a variety of records that you can look at to get information. And I want to also mention that it's going to vary, again, state to state. So a state like South Carolina doesn't have as much detailed records if you are not from places like Charleston or Edgefield. Charleston has the best records. Edgefield has the second best archival collection in the state. In contrast, Virginia has a wealth of records, and they have a register going back to, I believe, 1853 registers of births and deaths in the Commonwealth. Well, I hate to end our conversation. I think we're going to, we're just going to keep talking every now and then. I'll have to bring you back and bring in Kevin Cherry to talk about the virtue of Cain because I so do enjoy uh, this history and I'm sure sure that our audience does also. Uh, So I want to thank you, uh, Natan, for joining me today. Um, Natan is co- author of There is Something About Edgefield, Shining a Light on the Black Community Through History, Genealogy, and Genetic DNA. And let's include how people can reach out to you if they would like to be in touch with you about the book, about your other book projects, about your own classes that you teach in doing family research. How can people reach you? The best way to get in touch with me is via email at rockypondpress at gmail.com. Okay, that's Rocky Pond Press, all one word at gmail.com. That's correct. Okay. Thank you for joining me today, Natan. Thank you for having me again, Esther. on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Ivarum. well june 1st marked the 99th anniversary of the tulsa race massacre during which as many as 300 african americans died when whites burned down 35 square blocks and more than 1200 houses in the prosperous greenwood section of tulsa known as black wall street survivors and their families have continued to fight for reparations In recent months, more of the world learned about the Tulsa massacre when, during the height of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations during the summer, President Donald Trump scheduled a controversial indoor campaign rally in Tulsa on the African-American holiday of Juneteenth, and then he changed it to one day later. But 
This week, there were major developments in the investigation about what happened to the 300 victims of the Tulsa race massacre. And we're very fortunate to have Deneen Brown, reporter for the Washington Post and also a professor at the University of Maryland uh, on the line. Uh, She's been on the ground in Tulsa not only covering the story now, but actually covering the whole rediscovery of this case and bringing the information to a mass audience. Welcome to On the Ground, Deneen. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So I was really moved to see your story about the fact that they had located, uh, I, I guess, in a, in a park or a portion of a cemetery in Tulsa, uh, what they believe may be the first actual remains of uh, victims of the Tulsa massacre after they failed to find anything in July. Right. So what they found uh, this week was um, what the archaeologists, the state archaeologists, called a mass grave. And it was found in Tulsa City, uh, the the cemetery is owned by the city of Tulsa. It's called Oakland Cemetery. Oakland Cemetery is just a few blocks from Black Wall Street. As you know, Black Wall Street was named such by Booker T. Washington, who visited Greenwood, prosperous all-black community called Greenwood in Tulsa, which was destroyed in the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. As you know, the Tulsa Race Massacre uh, began on May 31st, 1921, when a white mob descended on this all-black community of Greenwood and um, shot black people, looted their homes, burned their homes, destroyed their businesses, and... B.C. Franklin, the father of John Hope Franklin, wrote an eyewitness account where he saw turpentine bombs dropped from airplanes on these houses of these prosperous black people in Greenwood. Historians will say that it was the first time a U.S. city was bombed in the United States. So it is considered one of the worst incidents of racial violence against black people in the United States. Um, So uh, when you talk about planes, these were federal or national outfits involved, like the National Guard or something like that, right? Right, right. There's a whole history of this. So when black people ran out of their houses, they would shoot them. Um, So there's documented evidence that the police department and other officials in Tulsa, state officials as well, so-called deputized white citizens and gave them ammunition to shoot black people. So what happened over, some say, 48 hours from May 31st to 1921, uh, 1921 to June 1st, 1921, over 48 hours, these mobs um, committed these horrendous acts. When it was all over on June 1st, 1921, bodies lay in the street, 
as they rounded up the survivors. So the black people who survived this massacre were marched to what historians call concentration camps throughout Tulsa. Some of these camps were at the fairgrounds, one was at the convention center, but they literally marched black people with their hands up down the streets of Tulsa to these camps and held them under lock and key until white people or like white employers could vouch for them. In the meantime, um, authorities in Tulsa began picking up the bodies of black people who were killed in this massacre. Survivors said that bodies were dumped into on the banks of the river. Uh, survivors also recounted seeing bodies dumped into mass graves or carted into trucks and carried on trains out of town. And for nearly 99 years, this episode of racial violence was kept quiet. There was a deliberate attempt by the city to cover it up. Right. Right. Uh, there was one account I read, it, it may have been in your article, about people basically being warned, even in the 60s or 70s, that, uh, look, you, you need to keep quiet about this if you want to stay safe, basically. So now, I understand that some of the research and excavation that they've, they're doing now, they receive the information from survivors that they interviewed back in the 90s during another uh, investigation period. Um, and they, they let located uh, that someone mentioned this one uh, funeral director, a white funeral home that had a receipt for having buried 18 coffins basically and that that might be what they found this week yeah so what happened was in 1998 that there's a famous black state representative who pushed the uh, state of Tulsa state of Oklahoma to open an investigation into what happened in the 1921 Tulsa race massacre that report is called the Tulsa race riot commission report that commission concluded that the state and city of Tulsa should physically look for mass graves. But the then mayor of Tulsa closed that investigation without physically looking for these mass graves. In 2018, I came back to Tulsa. I wrote a story for the Washington Post raising questions about whatever happened with this investigation. And the mayor of Tulsa reopened the investigation in 2018 to search for mass graves. And um, they started digging and started um, using ground-penetrating radar at different sites that these survivors pointed to uh, where they saw, they believe they saw mass people being dumped into mass graves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they did the, they did the ground penetrating radar at, at these various sites, including at Oakland Cemetery. In July of this year, they started digging at a small area of the cemetery. It's called um, they called it the Sexton area. So it was, a, it was like a test excavation. They did not find human remains there. But see, the headlines got it. I don't know, you know, people only read headlines these days. They thought, oh, it's over. They didn't find any human remains, but it wasn't over. There were more sites that they were going to investigate even in July. Right. Um, So in September, they decided that they would look for, expand their investigation in the same cemetery 
to um, what they call the Potter's Field section. It's still a, it's like a colored section of the cemetery where the black people were buried. This is where there are two known riot dead, they call them riot dead, two known black tombstones of two black men who they know were killed in the massacre because their tombstones say that they died on June 1st, 1921. They're Reuben Everett and Eddie Lockhart. So again, there are two tombstones in this area of the cemetery. What the city did um, this week is they decided to dig near those tombstones for these 18 black people that were listed on a funeral home ledger from 1921. Uh, there was a white funeral home that built the city of, I'm sorry, the county of Tulsa for the burial of 18 quote-unquote Negroes, right? Right. But that, that ledger never um, really uh, said where they buried them. So for nearly 100 years, they didn't know where these 18 black men buried in Oakland. So again, the city decided to look in that area, which they called the original 18th area, and that's when they found human remains on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, um, archaeologists announced they found what they, they believe to be a mass grave. Uh, there are at least 11 bodies in one trench, and today the archaeologist says that it may be as many as 30. Wow. Wow. So okay. What's significant about this is, as you know, there are many campaigns of racial terror that were committed all across this country and cities across the country. And Tulsa is the first city in the country that has really started physically looking for, uh, you know, black people who were killed and who are in unmarked graves and who have gone missing. So this is a significant moment in the history of Tulsa. That's what the mayor said. It's, I think it's a significant moment in black history because uh, many of the descendants of the survivors of the massacre say, you know, this place is, is haunted. I mean, nobody looked for those dead black people who were killed in this massacre. So for so long, they've been under the ground in unmarked graves, they did not get proper funerals. They did not get proper burials. So the um, the hope is that once you know the city completes its process, that these uh, black men and women who were killed in this massacre will get a proper burial. Okay. Well, we'll definitely stay in touch with you and keep following the story because it sounds like this is just the beginning. And it could be that if some of the deceased were actually shipped on uh, by truckloads out of town or or put into a river, we may never know, never find those people. But if they were buried there in the ground in Tulsa, at least there might be some recognition and some closure for their families. So. That's the hope, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, I've been speaking to uh, Deneen Brown, a reporter at the Washington Post and a professor of journalism at the University of Maryland. Thank you for joining me, Deneen. Thank you so much. 
And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Thank you to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on Patreon. Our new podcast is On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, and that is on all your podcast platforms. The podcast, the social media pages, and the website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. That's where you'll know that you have the right on the ground. The music we played this hour included Taina Asili, We Are Rising, and Kumasi Washington, Street Fighter Moss. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>